Well, if you've been here for the last couple of weeks or a couple of months, you know that we are going through the book of Ephesians, right? We're going through it verse by verse. And we're on Ephesians chapter 2 today, starting in verse 19 through 22. Now, if you've been here, this is what you know so far. This is what we've learned. We were all far away from God. In fact, worse than that, we were enemies of God. In fact, worse than that, we were all dead. And there was nothing that we could do about it. But God, being rich in mercy, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be a sacrifice for our sins. It was a gift, the gift of salvation. It's a gift. There's nothing you can do to earn it, right? We've learned all this. And if you receive this gift, now you are restored back to God. There's restoration back to God. This is what we've studied so far. And can I just tell you this? Every word that I just said is 100% true. All of it, it's true. But what we're going to see today is that that's not the end of the gospel story. Okay, if I were to ask most Christians today... Tell me the gospel story. Tell me the full gospel story. I would get some version of that. I would get, we were lost, we were dead, Jesus came, he died on the cross for our sins. If we receive him, we're restored back to God, period. All of that's true, but that's not the end of the story. That's what we're gonna see today. Paul's gonna tell us in Ephesians 2, that's not the end of the story. God has more than just restoring you back to himself. He wants to restore us back to each other. If you remember last week, Tyler talked about this dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. And because of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, that wall was torn down. It was abolished. It was annihilated. It's not there anymore. So now not only are we not separated from God, we also don't have this separation between each other. And that's what Paul's going to do today. He's going to show us that in Christ, we are brought together. We are unified. There's unity in the body. Does that make sense? That's where we're going to start today. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19. The wall just was annihilated, and this is where we start in verse 19. It's on the screen if you don't have your Bible. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens... But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We see almost the exact same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. This says this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, through Christ Jesus. Are you seeing it? Do you see it? 
The wall is no longer there. Jesus broke down the wall. We've been restored to God. And now Paul's given us three images that show us that we are brought together as a family, as citizens being built up as the temple. Right? The wall was broken. The wall was broken down. What's next? He tells us. What's next? God's plan. God's plan to bring the gospel to the whole world. God's plan to bring all men into himself. God's plan. You ready? His whole plan. This is God's plan. It's you. And it's me. In other words, God's plan to take the gospel to every living person, whether it be across the ocean or if it's across the street to a neighbor who doesn't know him, is us. His plan to show the love of the Father is going to be put on display in the body. People can look at the body and see the love of Christ. His power, his wonders, it's all going to be displayed in the body of Christ. We're the plan. We are. You are. I am. We're the plan. Can I just be 100% completely dead level honest with you? When I realized that this week, we're the plan. That seems like a horrible plan. (laughs) I'm not joking. That seems terrible. It seems foolish. Why? Why do I say that? It's not, I'm not preaching heresy. Stick with me. I'm being honest. It seems like a horrible, foolish plan because I know me. I know my sins, I know my struggles. I'll take it a step further. I know the leadership of this church. And can I tell you something? They have sin and they have struggles. I know most of, well, not most, I know a lot of you. You have sins and struggles. So this plan seems crazy that we're the plan. So I was praying about that and I was studying it this week. I'm like, God, that's, that's a crazy plan. And he reminded me of something. You remember the story of Joshua in the city of Jericho when they knocked down the walls of Jericho? Do you remember this? Moses had risen up to lead them out of captivity in Egypt. Remember the, the Israelites were all captives in Egypt God raises up Moses to lead them out. They walk out of the promised land and Pharaoh's army starts chasing them, right? They come to the Red Sea. What are they gonna do? Army's getting closer. Moses puts a staff in the water. Red Sea parts. Children of Israel walk through on dry land. So the Egyptians start chasing them in. Swallowed them up, killed them all. God's people were delivered. They were set free. And what did they do? They started complaining. They started grumbling. They started griping. And as a result, God said, all right, your punishment is 40 years. You're going to be in the desert, in the wilderness, before you can see the promised land. 
40 years. In the meantime, Moses dies, and a new leader rises up. His name is Joshua, right? So after 40 years of wandering in the desert, they come to the Jordan River. On the other side of the Jordan River is Canaan. It's the promised land. They finally made it after 40 years. And immediately on the other side of the Jordan, up on the side of a mountain, was a city called Jericho, right? You remember learning this when you were a kid in children's church? You learned the song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. Jamie remembers it. She's the only one that remembers it. Okay, if you didn't learn the song, maybe you learned it on a flannel board. Anybody old enough for the flannel board? What we learned is that there was a huge city Sticking on the flannel board, huge city with a wall around it. And there was about 25 Israelites, all connected at the shoulder, remember? And they come across the Jordan, and they walk around the city. Can I just tell you something? We learned that story completely wrong. Uh Uh-oh. You want to know how I know that we learned that story completely wrong? Because archaeologists have found the city of Jericho. They found it. They dug it up. You want to see it? Got a picture of it. That's it. That, my friends, is the city of Jericho. The whole city of Jericho was 12 acres. It's about the size of the property that the Austin Stone, or Austin High sits on. About 12 acres. The maximum amount of people that could have lived inside the walls of Jericho, 3,000. It's not such a big city. It's actually a tiny city. So then you ask the question, well, how many Israelites were there? How many Israelites crossed the Jordan? To be honest with you, I don't know for sure. But I do know this, that in the book of Numbers, chapter 26, verse 51 Moses takes a census of all the fighting men of Israel. That means from the age of 20 up. Men that were able to fight. You know how many there were? 601,730. It's in the Bible. That's men who could fight. That's fighting men, 20 years and older. That's not counting kids or students up to the age 20. That's not counting women. That's not counting old people. So most scholars believe this. Crossing the Jordan River into the promised land, two million people. Now let's think about this story. How do two million people take over a land of 3,000? Hi. We're from Israel, and we're taking over this city, right? It's easy. But that wasn't God's plan. Do you remember God's plan? Joshua. What I want you to do is I want you to walk around the city one time a day for six days in complete silence. 
And then on the seventh day, I want you to walk around the city seven times. And at the end of the seventh time, I want you to blow your trumpets. And then I want you to shout and watch what happens. Now, this is, this is a real story, true story that happened. Can you imagine being one of the children of Israel? You got two million of you, and now you got to walk around the city in silence six days? You know, they're like, this is a dumb plan. <laughs> Why don't we just walk up there and just knock down that wall ourselves? It'd be easy. That's all we have to do. Shh. You're not supposed to be talking. We're not supposed to be talking right now. Just, 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 just. Seven days, seventh day, seventh time around. And what happened? The walls came down. Why would God use such a foolish plan? I'll tell you why. Because if Israel goes up there and they knock down that wall by force, who gets the glory? Israel does. But if Israel obeys the word of God and the walls still come down, who gets the glory? God does. Does that make sense? So when I started reading that this week, Ephesians 2, in that light, it has a whole new meaning to me. Okay, because that wall that Tyler talked about in between Jews and Gentiles, and the wall that separated us from God, we couldn't knock it down. Only Jesus Christ could knock down that wall. Only Jesus. And he didn't come in and knock it down by force. Right? He came in and he humbled himself to death on a cross. And then the walls came down. That's unbelievable. And he gets the glory for it. So we're going to look at this scripture one more time in that light. Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 22. Let's just read it one more time. Think about it this way. The wall is gone, so now you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints. And you're members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself, being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built up into a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. Do you see it now? Now his plan starts to make sense. See, Paul is giving us a picture of what it looks like to be the body of Christ. He's given us three pictures of what it looks like to be the body of Christ and how this plan is going to come into being is when there's unity in the body. And unity comes in your identity, not in your behaviors and your actions. In other words, what I mean by that is unity is not a bunch of people rallying together around the same cause, like in an election year, in a campaign. You have a bunch of people rallying together. That's not unity. Unity is not even 
people rallying together against a common enemy, like in a time of war, when nations come together. That's not unity. Unity is not even coming together as a body and trying to break down the walls of race, the walls of religion, the walls of politics, the walls of age. You know why? Because we can't break down those walls. Only Jesus can break down those walls. And we're, when we're unified as a body and we realize that we can't compare ourselves to each other, we have to compare ourselves to God, that's when our identity changes. It's not actions and behaviors that creates unity. It's identity. When your identity changes and you compare yourself to God instead of each other, that's when you're unified. It'd be like this. If tonight, I said, tonight at midnight, all of us are going to show our unity by going over to Zilker Park at midnight. Okay? At midnight. Everybody bring a light. And we're going to show how unified we are. Right? So you show up with your friends at midnight. You're there. You're punctual. And you have your little taper candles. This little light of mine. And you're feeling pretty good about it. We all got our light. We're unified, right? Well, then the next group of people comes, and they've all got mag lights like the cops carry. And there's a whole bunch of them. So now you and your buddies are over here with your taper candles, and you start feeling insignificant. There's division, even though you both have lights or you're not unified because you feel incompetent and they feel cocky. Right? But then guess what happens? Ricky shows up. Ricky comes barreling in, this Ford F-350 that's jacked up, got big mutters on it, got a row bar with four KC lights on the top. He's got a ranch hand bumper with two KC lights. And on his mirrors, he's got deer spotlights. Well, now what? You feel insignificant. And the Maglite people feel insignificant. Because Ricky has got, you know, 20,000 watts blasting at you. Y'all need light? (laughs) You see what I'm saying? There's division, even though you're coming in the name of unity, because you're comparing yourselves to each other. And it's going to be like that until what? Until the sun comes up. The surface of the sun is burning 100. I know it's 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. You can fit a million earths inside the sun, and it comes up and it's like. (sighs) Well, guess what? Now you can't even see your light, they can't see their lights. And you can't see Ricky's lights. Why? Because you're all in the same playing field when you look at a true light. That is unity. Unity is found when we as believers quit comparing ourselves to each other, quit thinking we're better than each other, and we start looking at God and realizing that without Jesus Christ, we are all dust. We are hopeless. We are lost. You see what I'm saying? That's unity found in identity. 
And that is what Paul is doing. Paul says in verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are now all citizens of the kingdom of God. Okay, he gives us three pictures, citizens, family, and temple. All three of them have horizontal relationships, right? That means how you relate to each other, and they have vertical relationship, how you relate to God. And they're like a funnel, okay? So as the funnel gets smaller, your identity becomes more clear, and it becomes more intimate, and there's more unity. That's the picture we're going to see. So then, verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Now you are citizens of the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It means that horizontally now, your relationship to each other, how you're related to each other, is now you share things in common. You have common culture. You have common laws. You share common land. That's your horizontal, right? What's your vertical? Your vertical is... Now you all have the same king. You're all under the same king. And honestly, there's not a better king in the world to be under than our king Jesus. You know why? Because he knows your name. He knows who you are. He has time for you. You can see it in the life of Jesus, King Jesus, when he was on the earth. You remember the last time he was going to Jerusalem? He's walking to Jerusalem. He's got his eyes set towards Jerusalem. And there's a crowd of people gathered around him just pressing in because they're all going together. And they pass a poor blind guy that's on the side of the road. And he yells out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. All the people that were walking with Jesus were like, shh, we're going to Jerusalem, man. He doesn't have time for that. Be quiet. What does Jesus do? Jesus hears him. He turns. He has time to stop have compassion on him, and he heals him. He does it all through the scripture. He does it with Zacchaeus. He does it with the woman that had the issue of blood. She can't get to him, and so she just reaches out and touches the hem of his garment, and instantly she's healed. That's the king you want to serve because this king has time for you. This king listens to you. He listens to your heart. He listens to your dreams. He listens to your fears. He listens to your cries. That's an amazing identity, right? But Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't say you're just citizens. He says you're citizens of the kingdom of God, and now also you're members of the family and the household of God. Funnel's getting narrower. How is a family different than being citizens? Families share blood. My dad used to say, blood is thicker than water. Yeah. What did he mean by that? (laughs) What he meant by that is when you share blood in a family, there's a bond that bonds you together, and nothing comes between you. Family takes care of family, right? In fact, that's what the Bible says. Romans chapter 15, verse 1 says this, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Galatians 6, 2 says this, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In other words, we as a family now that we're together, 
and nothing comes between us, we carry each other's burdens. That's the goal of the church. That's why Christ has created a community and an identity with us so that we can bear each other's burdens. That's the horizontal of that one. What's the vertical? We did have a king. Now in the family, what do you have? You have a father. A father is more intimate than a king, right? Matthew 7, 11 says this. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to all those who ask him? It's not just a king now, it's a father and he's listening to you and he wants to give you good things, right? It's an unbelievable picture. But check this out. We're not just citizens. We're not just part of the family of God. Now we're part of the temple. God is building up a temple. Now, listen, I know on the surface a temple does not sound more intimate than a family. I get that. But when you look at the horizontal and the vertical relationships, it's way more intimate than a family. Why? I'll tell you why. Because when you're in a family, nothing can separate you, but you can go do your own thing. You can disagree on things, whatever. You're still going to be family, right? But when you're being built into the holy temple of Jesus Christ, you are connected, literally, with mortar. You're connected to each other. You have one purpose, to build up the temple of God. Does that make sense? Nothing can separate you. You're connected if you're part of the temple. Not only this, but it says this. It says, you are laid upon the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. What does that mean? That means that if you are in Christ, you are being built up as a temple, but you are in the same structure, in the same temple as Paul, as Peter, as Matthew, you're connected to Elijah. If you come, keep going through history, you're connected to Martin Luther, you're connected to Isaac Watts, you're connected to John and Charles Wesley, you're connected to C.S. Lewis. In fact, one of my, my favorite verses in the whole Bible is James chapter 5, verse 17, which says this, Elijah was a man just like us. If that verse doesn't fire you up, nothing will. Because what does that mean? It means that the same thing that God did with the prophets and the apostles and the power that he gave them and how he built up the church, he can do the same thing through you. And he can do the same thing through me. That absolutely fires me up. But how does that happen? It happens because of the vertical relationship. Okay? Stick with me. On the vertical relationship, when you're part of the temple, is completely different than the other two. Think about it. When you're a member of a kingdom and you have access to your king, it's awesome. You have access to your father, which is awesome, but they're both external. They're outside of you. But what does the Bible say about when we are the temple. When we are the temple, where does God live? Inside. 
God lives inside of you. That's the plan. That's when this crazy plan starts making sense because it's not you. It's Christ living in you. Colossians 1.27 says this. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. This mystery which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. That's the plan. It's not just you and me being connected. It's Christ in us that's going to carry out the plan. And then who gets the glory? Us? Uh uh-uh. uh. Jesus does. Let me just say one more thing and then we're going to close it up here. It says that you are being built up as a living stone. And this is really, really important for you and me to grasp onto. It doesn't say you're being built up, you're building up the temple using living bricks. It says living stones. Why? Because a brick mason is different than a stone mason. You ever seen the two work? A brick mason, when he's building a wall, he grabs a brick, slaps it down, puts some mortar on it. Grabs a brick, slaps it down, puts some mortar on it. Grabs a brick, slaps it down, puts some mortar on it. Why? Because every brick is exactly the same. They all look the same. But that's not us. Look around you. We don't all look the same. That's why he says you're living stones. Have you ever seen a a stonemason work? It's awesome. It's an artwork. They'll grab a stone, they look at it. Nope. Grab another stone, look at it, flip it over. Nope. Grab another one until they find the one that they want. And they're going to put this in their wall. But then do they just lay it down on there and put some water on it? Uh Uh-uh. They don't. You know what they do? They grab a hammer and they grab a chisel. They put that stone there and they... Until what? Until the stone is perfect. Can I just tell you something? This is the reason for church. Hello? This is the reason for church. This is the reason that we come together. This is the reason that we assemble. It's because God is shaping us to be perfect stones that are connected to each other. Why? Because when we're connected to each other in biblical community, that's when we experience the fullness of the presence of God. That's the rest of the story of gospel. That church is why living in biblical community with believers is not optional. It's not icing on the cake that just happens to have after we get saved. No, that's God's plan. His plan is to indwell you with his presence 
when you're living together in biblical community. And for the people of God, the presence of God is everything. And can I just tell you this? This right here is not comfortable. It can hurt. It cannot be fun. But it's absolutely essential to what God wants to do in your life. How he wants to shape you and mold you till you're the perfect stone that will only fit right here. And you're in there forever. Now when you start talking to people, they'll give you a lot of reasons why they don't want to be involved in the community of church, the community of believers, right? Well, I don't want to go to church because it's full of a bunch of hypocrites. You're right. Church is full of a bunch of hypocrites, and you're one of them. The only person that ever lived that wasn't a hypocrite was crucified for your hypocrisy. Well, I don't want to go to church because all they do is they ask for money. Maybe God's shaping you and he's showing you that your security is based on what you can do. It's based on your own money. Instead of realizing that Jesus Christ is worthy of everything and he's your security. Well, I don't want to be involved in a missional community because when you're involved in a missional community, you have to be vulnerable with people. And when you get vulnerable with people, you get hurt. And I've been hurt by Christians in the past. Maybe God's trying to show you that your worth and your identity is not bound in what, found in what other people think about you. Your worth and your identity is found in what Jesus thinks about you. Does that make sense? You got time for a couple more? I got, I got a couple more. I'll, I'll keep going. I don't got anything to do. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to serve. I don't want to get involved because Sunday is my day to play. Maybe God's trying to show you that there's no such thing as your day to play. Maybe what God's trying to show you is that the very breath that you're breathing in your lungs right now is a gift from him. One more. I don't want to go get involved in church because I really feel like I have a lot to offer. And everybody else around me keeps getting elevated up on the platform. And I just get overlooked. Maybe God's shaping you and showing you that the reason you come to church is to build up the kingdom of God, to worship and serve Jesus, and instead of trying to build up your own agenda. We could keep going. I mean, there's a million of them. We're not going to. Logan's going to come up here and we're going to close. And as he comes up here, I'm just going to tell you one story. One story. 
one story, practical application story of how I've seen a seemingly foolish plan from God be something beautiful. In 2001, there were seven people that got together at my living room at 147 Maple Branch in the Woodlands, Texas. Matt and Jen Carter, my wife Janet, myself, Brad and Kathy Colley, and a country boy from Grand Saline, Texas named Chris Tomlin that I ended up playing bass for for 17 years, like Matt said. The seven of us gathered in my living room to pray about moving to Austin, Texas and starting a church together. That sounds like the start of a really bad joke. Four Aggies, a teacher, and two musicians walk into a bar. What in the world could God do with four Aggies, a teacher, and two musicians in Austin, Texas that would bring glory to him? You're sitting in it. I want you to hear me say this. I don't say this out of one ounce of pride. I say this because this was the plan. And although it seemed foolish, Jesus knew what he was doing. And who gets the glory? Seven of us? <laughs> Jesus gets the glory. That's what it's all about. So now today, there's 8,000, approximately 8,000 people that come to the Austin Stone every Sunday. Across five campuses, 8,000 people. Why do I say that? Because what if 8,000 people actually grasped their identity in Jesus Christ? What if 8,000 people started living in community and they started praying prayers like, God, give us vision and give us dreams of what we could do to build up your holy temple. Not only that, what if your community started praying, God, don't just give us dreams, but give us courage to step out on faith. What would happen if 8,000 people did that? I'll tell you what would happen. The city would change. The nation would change. This world could change for the glory of God the Father through Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, can we stand together? I know this is weird. Stand up. As Logan leads us, In this song, I want you to pray that God will show you your identity in Christ, that you are a living stone that's being built up and chiseled and shaped into something perfect, and that the person next to you is a living stone 
being chiseled and shaped into something perfect, and the person next to them is a living stone being chiseled, chiseled and shaped into something perfect, and that God is building up something here in Austin, Texas, and what he's building is built on the precious cornerstone of Jesus Christ. He is our solid rock. That is why we can stand together and we can say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand in all other ground. Is sinking sand. Jesus, give us vision. Amen.